Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Many people recently will have picked up on the story of Tony Folds. Uh, Tony, if you don't know, Tony Folds was one of, one of a, a group of children who were in Encliffe Park in February 1944 when an American plane that had been on an air raid and had been hit was limping back and was, was coming down over Sheffield. And the plane, the Mi Amigo, eventually crashed into trees in Encliffe Park, avoiding the houses around, but also avoiding Tony and his friends who were playing in the park. Well, Tony always remembered that day. He became more interested in, the, this, in, in going back and visiting the site and remembering those who had died and had crashed around the age of 17 and from that time he faithfully went back and then when a memorial was set up in 1969 he faithfully tended and looked after and cleaned up and 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 added to that memorial in the park ever since gradually giving more and more effort and time to the point where he said this has taken over my life and his recent chance meeting with Dan Walker brought this to public attention and led to the recent flypast on the 22nd of February. And when asked, why do you do it? He said this, because they saved my life. In Tony Folds, we see a picture of a man who was changed by what happened to him and made it his goal to honour those men who saved his life. Off the back of looking at a people of being a people of grace on Wednesday, we're, we're going to look here in Romans chapter 11 and 12. Being a people who worship. A people who are so impacted by the grace of God that it pours out of us. We hear Paul's response here to what he's been declaring over the first ten and a half chapters. Oh, sorry, eleven and a half chapters. No. Do the maths, Rich. We're in chapter 11. Ten and a half chapters. That's right. Got it right this time. His response is, oh, the depths of the riches. Oh, how awesome is our God. Oh, how wonderful this is. His response is to worship. We're going to look at that a bit today. 
What do we mean by worship? Do we mean a time of singing on a Sunday? Well, yes and no. Worship's not just singing. Worship's not just this block of time before the preach on a Sunday morning or afternoon. Worship, as Paul goes on to say in these verses, is much bigger than gathering to sing. As those who put together the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they ask the question and then answer it, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper summarised like this. So here's my summary. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and (coughs) demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. That's what we're going to look at today. What is it to be a people who worship, a people of worship, a worshipping people? Well, firstly this. Worship is based on a foundation of grace. We worship on a foundation of grace. Tony Fold's story gives us a picture of worship or honour or honouring someone coming from a heart that is grateful, a heart that has been changed. We see in this, in in this passage, Paul shows us both in his exhortation, what did he say? In view of God's mercy, chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, he's exhorting, he's he's encouraging, he's, he's pressing, but in view of what? In view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies. But also in his own cry of praise. It's in response to this. The mercy, the grace of God. Paul's been enthusing and explaining it for 11 chapters. Right back at the beginning, he launches in. In chapter 1 and verse 16. This is what he is talking about. He's not holding back from it. Chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And, and from that point, he sets out through this letter to show, look, at the wonders of the gospel of Christ. Look at, look at this grace that God has poured out. Look at the situation that we found ourselves in and look what God has done about it. In chapter 3 and verse 21, we see this wonderful truth. We were lost. The law could not help us. We couldn't do it. But in chapter 3, verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is what Paul is so enthused about. This is what he is communicating to the people. We were lost. We had no hope. We had nothing. All had sinned and fallen short. And yet, look what God has done. As he carries on in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And he goes on to talk about glorying in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces perseverance. And he goes on and he goes on. Look at the grace of God. Look at what he has done. Look at the mercy that God has poured out. Look at who God is. Look at who we are. Look at where we were. To the point that we get to chapter 8. And this great declaration at the beginning. 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul's captivated by this. Paul's got hold of this. It's the gospel, the truth of the gospel. See the grace and mercy of God. This is what Paul's saying. See, it's true. It's wonderful. It's incredible. And if you don't know it already, you can know it today. This God, this wonderful God who sent his son to save you. But Paul's response to this grace, to this God who pours out his mercy, to this incredible change that has happened, we were lost. I was lost. I was nowhere. Yet now I can come in to God's presence. I can be with God. I can know him. His response. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the wonder of it all. How unsearchable his judgments. His past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. How big is he? How awesome is he? How wonderful is he? How much greater are his ways than ours? How other is he? What a God. Paul's response is to worship He articulates his praise. Wow, God, you are awesome. In response to the truth about the grace of God that he has been conveying. Who God is, what he's like, what he has done. The grace and mercy he has poured out. That's what worship is. It's a response. It is the response to grace. As Piper says in that quote, it's about Valuing God, treasuring him, prizing him, enjoying him, being satisfied in him. In that sense, it's not about 
rituals or rules or, or what we do. This is how we worship. We turn up on a Sunday morning and we sing for a little bit and we sing the right songs and we say the right prayers or whatever. No, it's not about that. It's a heart response to who he is and what he's done. That's what Paul is speaking out. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wonder of the wisdom and knowledge of God's. And Paul, as Piper similarly suggests in that quote, but Paul here in the scripture shows that true worship is more than just gathering to sing, more than just singing some songs. Our response to the grace of God goes far beyond just singing songs. And Paul makes that clear at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, as Paul says these words, we see it goes far beyond singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. Beyond lifting up his name for half an hour, three quarters of an hour. Worship's not something we can turn on on a Sunday morning and then turn off again as we leave or, or even, dare I say, as the preach starts. It goes beyond our Sunday, Sunday times of gathering. In fact, it goes beyond singing full stop. It's not just praising with our lips. It is everything. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true and proper worship. But what does this mean? How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, Paul is, is talking about something more. He's talking about a life of worship. Lord, in view of your mercy, I give you everything. All of me. In view of the fact you have won me. Without you, I am nothing. Therefore, I'm giving you everything. In grace. It's not a duty or a payment or in some ways trying to earn something from God's. It's the grace of God being outworked in our lives. It's the response of our hearts lived out because of who God is and the grace and mercy he's shown us. And it is lived out. It's to be lived out. Physically and practically, Paul deliberately chooses these words in some ways to shock his original readers. Particularly in the Greek thinking world of the time. To offer your bodies. Paul, what are you talking about? Our bodies are the unclean thing. Why are you talking? Maybe our minds, Paul. Maybe our hearts. Maybe, maybe our thoughts and our, our, our intellects. Maybe. But our bodies. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's It's everything. It's everything. It's not a purely abstract or internal thing. I'm thinking good thoughts about God. Or I know God in my heart. But he's lived out. It's a massively physical and practical thing. Even as Neil was talking just now. Give. We... There's so many ways that we can live out what God has done in us. How we can experience and know his grace as we bless others. 
But this is what Paul's talking about. We've been rescued, we've been saved, we've been ransomed, we've been brought in to God's family. He doesn't hold back in the way, in his language. Once we were dead, now we're alive. So therefore, lives of worship are lives that are changed. Our worship is to live lives that are following him. As Paul goes on to say, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. This is the response to his grace. To know him more and more through his words and by his spirit at work in and through us to allow the spirit and the word of God and his grace to transform us. That our minds would be transformed. That we, we wouldn't conform to what we just see around us. Oh, this is the way of the world, is it? I'll just carry on doing this. No, God is at work in us, transforming us, changing us and calling us. Follow me. Come after me. Follow me. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Give everything to me. I'll lead you on. That more and more as we live our lives, our decision-making day to day, what we think and what we do, everything, not just the songs we sing on a Sunday, everything is for his glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's tackling a very specific example, but then he brings this, this comment in chapter, chapter 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, whatever you eat or drink, he's been talking about uh, whether it's right to eat particular foods or different things and what situations. But here's the summary, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all for the glory of God. goes on to say, don't cause anyone to stumble we're not, we're not going out of our way to, 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 to make problems for people because what we're doing, everything we do, is to be done for the glory of God. As he says in Colossians chapter 3, as well. Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's everything. Whatever we do, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're doing, we want to glorify our Father and glorify Jesus. It's the response in grace to his grace. So you see, worship goes beyond singing or verbal declarations or even corporate times of praise. It's our lives given for him, given to him in response to his grace. But Paul does demonstrate here we are called to worship with our mouths, to praise him with our lips, as the writer to the Hebrews says in, in, in conclusion in his letter. In, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess 
his name. And he goes on to say, don't forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. But part of this response is a sacrifice of praise from lips that openly profess his name. So this is true worship founded on his grace. But secondly, worship does flow from our lips. We see Paul broadens it out to show it's not just what you say. It's not just what you sing when you gather together, but that's certainly a part of it. We see what Paul is doing here. Hold the depths. Praise is flowing from him. Even as he writes his letter, it's flowing from him. It flows, worship flows out of lives lived to worship God. Out of our lives of worship, from from our hearts that are satisfied in God. From hearts that know, value, treasure, prize and enjoy God, worship bubbles up. On our own and corporately when we gather together. Worship involves speaking out and singing. The Bible is full of singing. We see many people throughout Scripture singing to God, singing out their praise to Him. If we go back to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, as they cross, they've crossed through on dry land, God has opened the way for them, and then Pharaoh's army has been crushed. Well, what's Moses and Miriam's response? As we see in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1, Moses and the Israelites, all of them together, sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea, and on he goes, and on they go in singing. And we see later at the end of, uh, later in the chapter, we see in verse 20 that Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. Maybe there's shudders at that. And all... Maybe not anymore. Maybe, maybe it's time for the tambourine to come back. We didn't get many shudders. Anyway, she took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Lots of tambourines. And Miriam sang to them. Sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. We see this response vocally with instruments, albeit tambourines, with dancing. They're celebrating together this is this is not internal and quiet but it bursts forth from them they've seen God break through in an amazing way God has rescued them and what's their response oh God I'm going to praise your name I'm going to lift up your name we're going to follow you God but part of that we're going to celebrate you we see as we go on through the old testament particularly through uh well, maybe not particularly through, but I'm going to particularly focus there on, on 1 and 2 Chronicles. From the end of 1 Chronicles and, and through uh, 2 Chronicles, we see different events with the kings and the kingdom uh, of Israel. Um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, sorry, chapter 15, David and the people are bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And what you get, the impre- you see this massive celebratory scene. We're celebrating our God. We're celebrating what has happened. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 16, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. 
As it goes on in, in verse 22, Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. And we see the result in verse 28. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and of the playing of lyres and harps. There's celebration. There's joy. There is singing and shouting the praise of God as they bring in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. We see later in, in 2 Chronicles 5 that Solomon brings the Ark to the temple. As the temple's just been built. And the very similar things happen. They're praising together. Even in circumstances where Jehoshaphat's leading the people of Judah to battle Moab uh, and Ammon. They're going out to battle. And we see in 2 Chronicles 20, as they're on the way, what happens? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20 uh, and verse 20, they're on their way, but we see here early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. And after consulting the people, uh, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Even in, as they go out to battle... Actually, it's the set. No, no, we need to worship the Lord. We need to praise Him. We need to lift up His name. And actually, even as they're singing, God brings the victory. The Old Testament and the New Testament are full of examples of His people singing praise to Him. As the walls are re- after the walls are rebuilt, when they come back from exile, Nehemiah leads the people there in singing. Even in time of great trial and turmoil. Jesus and his disciples, after the Last Supper, they're about to go out to the Mount of Olives. But what does it say? After they'd sung a hymn, they sang together. They praised God the Father. Even as Jesus knows, this is, I'm on my way to the cross. I'm going to sing to my Father. The early church devoted themselves, amongst other things, to praising God together. And we see also in Acts 16, verse 25, we won't turn there, but Paul and Silas are in prison. What are they doing at midnight? Praising God, shouting and singing, and all the other prisoners can hear them. We see singing and praise. Of course, if we wanted to turn anywhere first, we'd probably go, actually, if you're going to see singing, there's a whole book of it. Turn to Psalms. There's... It's all over the place. But we see singing and praise is a highly appropriate response, which is encouraged and exhorted throughout Scripture. The people of God are a people who sing, who worship, who praise their gods. And the Spirit at work in us causes praise to bubble up. It's an appropriate response. Sing and make music to the Lord. Speak out his praises as Paul does here. It is what we love to do when, we're gathering, when we gather together. And actually, we've deliberately, and I'm keeping to it, I'm not going to go on too long, we're deliberately leaving time both before and after 
preaching today, we want to sing and lift up our voices and, and hear what God is bringing to us and through us and the praise of his name as we gather together. So I will try and come into land soon. It's not a worship and praise. Even when we meet on a Sunday, it's not an optional extra or a warm-up to the preaching or, in fact, the more interesting distraction before that guy gets up to speak. It's a deliberate time of gathering. We want to glorify our God together. We want to lift up his name. We want to do what we see in these, these passages in Scripture God, we're praising you. You've rescued us, therefore our hearts are overflowing to you. So worship is founded on grace. Worship flows from our lips. And worship is fueled by the word and by the spirit. We've already said, Paul, as he is responding, he is responding to what he's just said in his first ten and a half chapters. He's responding to the grace and mercy of God as he says, in view of God's mercy, let's do this. But it's a response to the truth of who God is and the truth of what God has done and the truth of the grace of God and the mercy of God. The truth of scripture, the truth of who we are, the truth of our relationship with God and how wonderful he is, how glorious it is that we get to be with him. See again in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. What is Paul's encouragement to them there? We read it just a moment ago, but let's return there. If I can get to Colossians. Colossians 3 and verse 16. What's he he encouraging them? Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And then what? As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul's encouragement is let the message, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let you be strengthened, be encouraged, be be, uh, upheld and, and taught by his word. Be changed by it. And what flows out? Part of the outcome or response is to sing, to be grateful to God, to to teach and admonish as we sing psalms and, and hymns to one another and spiritual songs. But it's fueled by the truth of his words and by the power of the Spirit at work in us. Ephesians 5, Paul says this in verse 18 Don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then what comes about? Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The filling of the Spirit leads to worship, to singing. It fuels our worship and our praise. Underlines what Dan was saying, I think, at the beginning on Wednesday when we were looking at being a people of grace, these things are not a menu to select from. Oh, I I quite like the idea of being a people of the word. I'll take that one. I I quite like being a people of the spirit. I'll I'll take that one. People of grace, fantastic. I'll have that one. These collectively reflect and identify who we are in God. 
A people who know God through his word, with his spirit at work in us, rooted in his grace. Therefore, we are a people living lives of worship to him, on a mission for him and with him. And that worship must bubble up in words and prayer and songs, praise to God, the fruit of lips that confess his name. As Paul just can't hold it back. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is it. This is worship. Lives lived for him. A response from our hearts to the grace and mercy of God, lived out and bubbling over in praise from our lips. Founded on grace, fueled by the word and by his spirit and flowing from our lips. We're going to close in it. Well, we're not going to close. We're going to we're going to carry on worshipping together. But I'm going to stop talking in a minute. But just a couple of moments, just to talk about when we gather together. How do we apply this when we gather? We're a people of grace who worship their gods. As we said at the start, this is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Again, as I mentioned briefly, this was a feature of the early church. As they gathered... They praise God. They devoted themselves to it. So how do we apply this when we gather? Just a few simple points. Whilst we gather together, we come as a people standing in grace. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to somehow kind of earn favour with people. We're standing in grace, delighted in our God. But we come as a body led by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, talk about when we gather together, everyone has different things. I'll turn there because I'll, otherwise I'll misquote completely. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, when we gather together, what should we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. What Paul's saying to the Corinthians, look, It's not meant to be just led by one person from the front. We're all coming together as a body. Each one has something to bring. Whether that's a tongue or an interpretation, a a testimony, a word of encouragement, a song to bring. That's why we, as Grant encouraged us at the beginning, that's what we're encouraging when we gather together. We come as a body I would encourage us, when we come, let's come ready to give. Come ready to, God, what, have you, what are you giving me to bring that would encourage everyone and would bring glory to your name? And we come to praise and meet with God. Therefore, we come in faith and expectation. We expect God to speak and be at work amongst us. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 14 points out. You see, our goal is to glorify God, to lift up his name. In the end, we benefit. We're encouraged as well. We come as the people of the word. We want to sing songs of truth. It's wonderful. Just even as we started off, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. How sweet the name of Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on him. We want to sing truth. We want to select songs that say something that declare truth about God rather than primarily singing about how we feel. It was great again this morning. Oh, uh, um, remembering. Oh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. 
How majestic is your name? My eyes are fixed on you, God. That's what I'm coming to do. So we want to be singing truth, but at the same time, I was listening to, to Arnold talking on worship this week, listening to the tape cassette. I was just struck by this. We want to sing songs of truth, but at the same time, we don't want to come with a critical spirit. Nitpicking over every line of songs and thinking, oh, I wouldn't have chosen that. That's not my preference. I'd rather have this song, not that song. Actually, I'm not entirely sure, but let's be a people who are very able to glorify their gods with whatever comes, or whatever is brought. It's not to say we want to be slack or sing things, sing things that aren't true. But let's lay down our preferences and come to him in worship. And we want to use our bodies, everything. Slightly uh, shoehorning back into that Romans 12 verse. But it is a reference to our physical bodies. It's not about everything being internalised. No, we're living it out. We're, we're, we're doing that as we praise. So we are free to clap and to dance as Miriam and the others did with their tambourines. And to, to raise our hands to, to, for our bodies to be worshipful as we sing. I want to encourage us. This is a response of, to the grace of God. We gather to praise him, to enjoy being in his presence. We're expecting that he will speak to us and work amongst us. We gather to glorify him. This is, this is a part of our worship. As Paul has said, it's far beyond just what we do on a Sunday as we sing, but oh boy, is it a part of what we do. That's what we want to do. We want to lift up his name to respond to him who has poured out his grace and mercy on us. So my encouragement is, let's do that now. I'm going to pray. Band, that is your cue. Uh, come on, I, I, why don't we stand together?